From Booksmart Studios, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and for this episode, I want to share with you new findings suggesting when language emerged. At what point did humans start talking? Because the whole idea about it has changed vastly since I first started studying linguistics. And I want to bring together some of the things that you may have come across in the news and give you a sense of the story that all of this new information is telling us. And it's a fascinating subject because in terms of how language began, how this thing started that I'm doing right now, it's very, very hard to get at what the beginning of it would have been. Because remember, it wouldn't have been written down. It wasn't that speech started and immediately people started scratching a representation of it onto leaves or something like that. What happened was people started talking and then writing only came along about 5,500 years ago. So if, for example, speech began 50,000 years ago, which was the old idea, still writing would only be at the very end of that. And now, as you'll see, speech must have emerged much, much longer ago than 50,000 years. So it wouldn't be about writing. You can't tell that creatures spoke from their bones. There's nothing about the skeleton that shows it. And so it would mean that people were talking, and it was just a mouthful of air, and it was gone as soon as it was said, except in people's memories. And of course, memory isn't preserved in fossils. And so how can you figure out when speech began. Go back 20 years and before that, and the fashionable idea was actually stunningly inappropriate. And I never got around to asking people just what their theory about this was, because I wasn't as interested in the subject then as I am now. But the old idea, and you'll still find this in what are now oldish books that may seem current because they were written after or just before the turn of this century. You'll see this idea that Language must have happened in humankind about 50,000 years ago in what was often called a Big Bang. But get this, the idea was that this happened in Europe. Now, it was well known back then that Homo sapiens goes back long before 50,000 years ago. Back then, the idea was 150,000, so you know three times it. And after that, it became 300,000. But back then, it was thought that Homo sapiens was about 150,000 years old. And there had been this big bang in Europe. And the idea was that there, you can see the development, for one thing, of sophisticated art, such as the famous cave drawings in Western Europe. So the thought was, this indicates that humans have gone from making some tools and killing some things and living in caves to actually doing something that shows that the kind of mind that produces things like Van Gogh and Michelangelo had developed. So, Big Bang. But the problem with this always was, if the Big Bang happened in Western Europe, what about all the other people in the world? And it was quite well known by then that by 50,000 years ago, humans had spread, Homo sapiens had spread to everywhere but the New World. So Homo sapiens is all the way down to Australia. Yet somehow there's this idea that there's the Big Bang only in Western Europe. And Derek Biggerton, who was a linguist and later a specialist in the evolution of language, had a wonderful line about this. And he was actually talking not about Homo sapiens, but Homo erectus, which is the species that preceded Homo sapiens. But 
His idea was that there had been this big bang before which, and so he was thinking about, for example, Peking Man, Jokodian, the caves of Jokodian, and these are Homo erectus, and he described them as having, quote, sat for 0.3 million years in the drafty, smoky caves of Jokodian, cooking bats over smoldering embers and waiting for the caves to fill up with their own garbage. So that's the best they can do. They're supposedly not talking. And then bang, some big bang in Barcelona or something like that. But that never really made sense. Was it supposed to be that the people who were way over in Indonesia somehow picked up on this big bang that happened way over in Western Europe? What migration was responsible for this? So why is it that everybody else apparently had much later big bangs? It really was not worked out. So don't listen to any of these books that you might pick up or, you know, ancient blog sites or something talking about this big bang. We've gotten past that. For a good 20 years now, it has been clear that really the whole bang, if there was such a thing, would have begun in Africa, which all evidence now shows was the homeland of humans. And that was known when people were talking about this European Big Bang, too. But there is now evidence that this bang, that this kind of mental sophistication had happened long before Cro-Magnon. Is it Cro-Magnon or Cro-Magnon? I've never had any idea. I'll bet it's technically Cro-Magnon, but I'd rather say Cro-Magnon because I grew up saying it. I had the little models that you put together with the cave people that looked like Charlton Heston and Raquel Welch, etc. So like a Cro-Magnon man. It's not there. It's down in Africa with Mandela Man. And so, for example, South Africa in Blombus Cave, there has been found drawings. These people were drawing. They were engraving on ochre. And it's clearly patterns that no monkey or advanced monkey could do. And you see this sort of thing going back, say, 73,000 years ago. Often, I think that's rounded up to 80,000. But even older than that, 100,000 years ago, you see in the Blombus Cave, evidence of an ochre workshop. These people are working on making a material that they then use for decoration. And the question is, were these people not talking? If the people who did the cave drawings in France and Spain are assumed to have been talking, well, what about these people? And you also get something else that's even more interesting. They're making beads out of shells, once again, that kind of decoration. But the thing is, the kind of decoration, the kind of style is different in different layers. In other words, as time goes by, the art was evolving. It was morphing. In other words, there was culture. You can call this culture. Talk about this Eurocentric business. In the West, there is art history. And so people start out painting in one way, and then it evolves. And next thing you know, you've gone from Velazquez to Mark Rothko, and there's this evolution, and it's always changing. Okay. But then we sense that with indigenous art, everybody's just doing the same thing millennium after millennium after millennium. And no, that's not true. So for example, the Saramaka people, that I have often discussed on this show. These are descendants of slaves who escaped plantations in Suriname in South America, and they still live in the interior today, and they speak a fascinating Creole language that blends English and Portuguese and the African languages Fongbe and Kikongo, and basically starts the grammar all over again and builds something brand new. It's fascinating. But the people themselves, they have indigenous art, and what's interesting is that people have analyzed the art and come to cherish it and buy it and put it in museums and have sometimes been disappointed that when you go back, say, 30 or 40 years later, they're doing different 
kinds of art. And the person from Europe says, well, wait, what about the basket with the star pattern, blah, blah, blah. And they say, oh, no, that's what our grandparents did, but we don't want to keep doing the same thing. And they didn't get this from the West because they are a very isolated culture with limited contact with the outside until relatively recently. So culture, same thing with Blombus Cave. Were these people not talking? If Charlton Heston and Raquel Welch were talking, then most certainly these people were talking. So that gets us back to at least 100,000 years ago. But we can go further back. And the way we can do this is on the basis of a gene that seems to have a lot to do with enabling humans to speak. It's not the only language gene, and it was certainly there before doing other things. But FOXP2 is connected to aspects of talking. Its importance was first discovered actually back in the late 20th century when there was this British family, and there were members of that family who had a real, what you really could call a speech defect. They had trouble pronouncing some things. There were different things about their facial movements than one normally finds, and even there were grammatical patterns that they had trouble mastering, having trouble marking things as plural, etc. Any members in that family who had that problem also had an irregularity in the FOXP2 gene. So for a while, in the 90s, for example, you saw headlines about how the language gene had been found. But here's the thing about FOXP2. Whatever its connection to language, Neanderthals, so the homos that were around before sapiens, Neanderthals have pretty much the same FOXP2. Pretty much the same thing. Some people would say exactly the same thing. Now that we've done genetic analysis on them, notice I'm implying that I did it, has been done on them. And the thing is, genetically, it looks like Homo sapiens and Neanderthals split about 600,000 years ago. To hell with this 50,000, and Blombus Cave shows us 100,000. The genetics suggest 600,000. Now, in terms of actual fossil finds, I think Neanderthals go back just about 50,000 years before Homo sapiens at this point. One never knows. Paleoanthropology is based to such an extent on fragments. But Homo sapiens, the earliest now is 300,000 years. Neanderthals, 350,000 years last time I checked. But the genetics say 600,000 years. Now, there used to be an idea that Neanderthals couldn't have talked. And the anthropologist Philip Lieberman, late great Philip Lieberman, had a really interesting idea that what allows Homo sapiens to talk is that our larynxes are pulled back, that as we become adults, the larynx goes further down in the neck, and it leaves us in a certain danger of choking, but it allows for us to have a large and flexible enough vocal cavity that we can make the range of vowels in particular that you need to have an actual rich, nuanced human language. That was a really neat idea, but the problem is it was based on, for example, an idea that Neanderthal's larynxes were higher, but that's not necessarily true, and this is the main problem. The larynx goes backward as you mature, and that allows speech, but wait a minute. Kids, their larynxes haven't gone back yet, and they talk, and so the question has arisen as to how crucial this business of the larynx was, and more to the point, with Neanderthals, there's new news practically every month. Neanderthals were originally thought of as these lesser homos, but not only did they have the tools, but they had elaborate grave rituals. They really did mourn their dead or celebrate their dead. 
apparently. They were masterful hunters. There's evidence that they killed not just elephants, but there were elephants back then that were almost twice the size of today's elephants. Imagine that, an elephant that's like a, a building. And they could take them down. They could take down cave lions. And cave lions are called that not because they were these kind of quiet lions who huddled in caves, but because you find their remains in Neanderthal's caves, as in they could take down lions of that time. And once again, their lions were bigger than our lions. Were these people really not talking in order to do that kind of thing? You've got to gather people together. You've got to have a plan. All of that just grunting. Now, just maybe it would be like a bunch of hyenas, but between that and the grave rituals, hyenas do not celebrate and mourn their dead. And the tools, hyenas don't have any tools. You get the feeling that these creatures were talking. And then on top of that, the genes also show these days that Neanderthals and homos mated. Now, there are all sorts of situations that may have been involved. But once again, it suggests that really sapiens and Neanderthals were variations on much more the same thing than we've often thought. So, between the Fox P2, the evidence of mental sophistication, and the mating, it would seem to suggest that Neanderthals talked too. And so that takes us back to at least 600,000 years ago. And then the story continues, but if you know the rhythm of the show, you know that it's time for an irrelevant song. But I'm going to make it actually semi-relevant. This is a song written in 1929 called Find Me a Primitive Man. And... Find Me a Primitive Man was a Cole Porter song. It was originally in, what was it, 50 Million Frenchmen. That was a Broadway musical. This is Madeline Kahn singing it in Peter Bogdanovich's unfortunate attempt to do an old school musical back in the 1970s. It was called At Long Last Love. Burt Reynolds and Sybil Shepard were in it. Enough said it just it, it did not quite work. But Madeline Kahn was in it, and this is when she was at her height, and she's singing Find Me a Primitive Man. allow that Homo neanderthalensis talked to. Well, what about Homo erectus? Homo erectus is before those two, and Homo erectus is smaller. Homo erectus is thought to be more primitive, so to speak, and certainly Homo erectus was before us. Now, we have this idea that it all evolves from a gorilla, and then there's this knuckle-dragging Homo blend, and then there is maybe the Neanderthal who's dragging one knuckle, and then us. Well, if there's any truth in that, well, Erectus was maybe a little more bent over, but erect. And Homo erectus was our precursor. And the truth is that there isn't 
much reason to suppose that Erectus couldn't talk. And the scholar who has pushed this hardest, and in my view successfully, is the linguist Daniel Everett. And I recommend his books, Language the Cultural Tool, and also How Language Began. And at first I was skeptical because, you know, I don't like change. And, you know, we are often skeptical of novelty. But no, I think he's making sense. One of Dan's crucial points is that there are hunter-gatherer cultures today where once they were gone, you would have no evidence of anything that they were doing linguistically. You would have no evidence of their cultural sophistication because they work mostly with wood, and wood decays over time, generally. And so once they're gone, what you have is, you know, teeth, scraps, some bones. You would never know how developed their abilities were. Wood decays, and yet hunter-gatherers speak sophisticated languages, often much more complex than anything that English has to offer. Their languages, if anything, tend to be more complicated rather than less complicated than big Western languages. Okay, so Homo erectuses were hunter-gatherers. One might think that because they don't leave behind evidence of mental sophistication, physical evidence, that, well, they couldn't talk, and so talking must have started somewhere in Madrid 50,000 years ago. But no, no, because finally there's been a very interesting find lately. Africa, again, not as far down as South Africa, but in Zambia, next to the Colombo waterfalls. And what it is is woodworking. It's carpentry. It's logs that are fit into one another like Lincoln logs. You're talking about slots and things. Clearly, somebody worked something out. Somebody had some sort of cabin or whatever they were making. They were making something quite deliberately, quite complex, quite crafted. And this is 500,000 years ago. Now, there are no Neanderthals in Africa, so we're talking about something else. So what species is it? Well, the best guess would be what's called Homo heidelbergensis. But to tell you the truth, there are there are too many Homo species. And I say this, you know, completely outside of paleoanthropology or paleopaleontology. But if you follow it from a loving distance, really, there are too many species. Some people are splitters. Some people are lumpers. Lumping seems to not be very fashionable among paleontologists of humanity. And so there are all these different things, usually based on one skull somebody found somewhere. I am a lumper, and I can't help thinking about things like one um, finding in Georgia, the country of Georgia, in the Dmanisi cave. It's 1.9 million years ago, so these are erectuses, presumably. And they're various individuals found, and they all look different. They look as different as a lot of these supposed Ergaster, Heidelbergensis, Homo species, because that's how humans are like. That's how many creatures are like. So whatever this this Zambia person is, it's not a Neanderthal, but is it something different from Homo sapiens? Really, we can't know. Oh, by the way, on Georgia, I should tell you that you should try some of their wines. Kintz Morali, Kvanch Kara. You should have a beautiful wine with a beautiful lady who informs you of the joys of Georgian wine that she became aware of earlier in her life. Just saying, we don't pay enough attention to Georgian wines. What this means 
is that there's no big bang in Barcelona. There is definitely big bangness that has happened in Zambia next to the Colombo Falls. So now we've got it that far back. Who were these people down there? Maybe they were Erectuses. Well, what about Erectus? Is there more evidence? Well, there is. Dan Everett has also made the point that there is clear evidence that Erectus crossed big water. Erectus did it a lot. You can see that Erectus got to Crete. Erectus got to an island called Socotra off of Yemen. And Erectus got from one Indonesian island to another. You're looking out across some big ocean and you make a boat. You gather people to help you make the boat and then to get into it with you with the plan to go somewhere else because things are getting kind of crowded. Flores, in particular, is an island where the currents are nasty. You have to be able to sail. In other words, you have to be able to teach people how to sail to handle that. Once again, Homo erectus being quote-unquote primitive or not, were these people not talking? Now, some people think that all of this might be an accident, that there was a tsunami and some erectuses got blown away. They were on some patch of land that broke off and then they wound up on Flores and then they just stayed there. That kind of thing can happen. That has been seen to happen in the midst of, say, recent tsunamis. But was that always the case? It seems that it would be a rather forced analysis. If Erectus has got so many places, so uniformly, too, it implies that they had the mental sophistication to gather and create vessels and to steer them and to settle in a new place having planned to do so. You don't just do that by grunting and gesturing and, and dancing. It seems highly unlikely. But you know what seems more likely is that you will want a bonus segment. If you want a bonus segment where I talk a little more about whatever the topic is, sometimes with irrelevant music, then what you do is you go to booksmartstudios.org and just click on Lexicon Valley. Give us a little money and you get more show. Since I took this little break, one more irrelevant song, but it's not irrelevant. This is a song called Talking to Myself. This is from a show called Hallelujah Baby, and you can just guess that that show was in 1969, and it was an attempt to get hip by the people who had written sunny little valentines to New York like bells are ringing. This is Julie Stein's music. This is Betty Comden and Adolph Green's lyrics. The show didn't quite come off, but it starred Leslie Uggams. And I've always had a little hobby horse about her. We hear endlessly about how Barbara Streisand was just this phenomenon in the 1960s, some of the best singing anybody's ever heard. Leslie Uggams' voice was every bit as good. And frankly, she didn't become a big, big name. She had a career, still has one, but she didn't become a big, big name because she was black at that time. Her voice just soars. And the Hallelujah Baby cast album is better than the show actually was by all accounts. Just the, the sonics of it, how good the singers are, how they programmed the album to go. So this is her on a Sunday morning in 1969. This song is Talking to Myself. And why I'm using this one will become clear after we hear this clip. Talking to yourself don't stand here talking to yourself The one you love is standing there So don't delay it Say it Tell him how 
sudden smile How you've been lonely all the while And tired of talking to yourself Talking to yourself Important to realize that as cozy as the idea is of us talking to ourselves or of language allowing us to have sophisticated thoughts, to ponder, to express our thoughts. That's not what it would have been. And it brings us back to Derek Bickerton, who I mentioned at the beginning. He has a very approachable book called Adam's Tongue. And he gets across quite memorably to me that language would have begun for communication between people. It wouldn't have begun just so you can put your finger up in the air and express your thoughts, because that wouldn't have been as central to keeping homo going, as in something that would be selected by Darwinian processes, as something that allowed a degree of communication beyond what any other animal can do, i.e. settling another island. Or Bickerton's idea was that it would have been to coordinate people in order to scavenge. So there's an elephant the size of a building that's died. You want to go get that meat, it'll feed you for seven years. But there are all these other animals that are going to try to come get it. There are these other bands of humans who are going to try to come get it. You've got to coordinate to go get it while it's still laying there and usable. Well, language would have emerged for that. Now, Bickerton, when he wrote, was imagining that this would have been among Homo sapiens somewhere in Africa. At least he had gotten it down to Africa. He had gotten over this Europe thing. But still, even if it happened earlier with Homo erectus somewhere else, I suspect that he's on to something. Goodness, Derek was a brilliant man. He um, is one of my inspirations for getting into Creole studies. He was also a major tool, frankly. I will never forget. I was a young grad student, and I was coming up, and I was getting a certain amount of attention. And he actually wrote me an email where he said straight out, and really, this was unprovoked, your problem is that you don't understand that I will always be the alpha baboon, and you will always be the beta baboon. And it wasn't exactly trash talking. He was mean. But like many mean people, he, I think, was absolutely brilliant. He did great work in Creole studies. A lot of his ideas have fallen down, but they were brilliant ideas anyway, and that's what matters. And his ideas about language evolution were interesting too. And he had the bravery to write clearly for the intelligent, interested layman. I was a great admirer of that asshole. In any case, the question is, did language allow thought? Well, not quite. It wasn't that you know everything was a knuckle-dragging beast until we could talk. Because if you think about it, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but if you think about it, dogs think. You can tell. Cats, a little less. But dogs are clearly thinking. Bonobos, the brand of chimpanzee, basically. They will sit and watch a sunset and put their arms around each other's shoulders while doing it. There is some kind of mental sophistication going on there. But language did enrich thought because there are kinds of thought, there are kinds of feelings that only are possible if you can communicate in a detailed and nuanced way. So, for example, remorse, feeling bad about doing something. It's hard to have that if it hasn't been communicated to you in a very explicit and detailed way 
why you should have remorse, why someone deserves your admiration when you actually may not have thought of it before. You feel bad that you did something because you're thinking about how the other person feels. Well, language is pretty responsible for that kind of feeling. Respect. You respect your grandmother, not you are in fear of somebody because they can hit you. That's easy. Amoeba probably can do that. But respect. You respect your grandmother because she helped raise all these other children, because she knows things that you don't, etc. All of that requires language. So once you can talk, you are a higher being cognitively. But the idea that higher beings emerged somewhere in Marseille or something like that 50,000 years ago. No, that's that's gone. It would have happened in Africa, and it probably happened long before the sapiens species itself. I believe, from what I've been seeing, that human speech arose in Homo erectus, and Homo erectus goes back, at this point, almost 2 million years. So speech is not 50,000 years old. It's 2 million years old. And often people give a caveat that it wouldn't have been as sophisticated a kind of speech as Homo sapiens, but I'm not sure why. You can get pretty sophisticated speech pretty quickly, and I see no reason why Homo erectuses couldn't have had languages just as complex as, for example, hunter-gatherers have now, and their languages are more complex than the one that I'm speaking. Thinking with words, that was an accident. That just came along like reading and playing the piano. But human speech was selected for, and probably it was a good 2 million years ago, not just 50,000. Isn't that neat stuff? If you'd like to leave a comment or subscribe, please visit booksmartstudios.org. Our producer is, as always, the ever-patient Mike Volo. Go to booksmartstudios at gmail.com also to leave questions. I, every couple weeks, answer two or three questions that people send in, and we learn more about language and linguistics. I know I certainly do. I enjoy answering the questions, so please send them in. Our theme music was created by Harvest Creative Services, and I am John McWhorter. <laughs>